Hello, fellow watch lovers, nerds, enthusiasts, or however you identify. You're listening to 40 and 20, the Watch Clicker podcast with your hosts, Andrew. I'm a good friend, Everett. Here, we talk about watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Everett, you're making me really uncomfortable as you keep like inching closer to the microphone. Like you're going to say something to interrupt me. And you had just like just a slight smirk on your face, like like you were planning something, but you weren't quite ready for it. Or maybe you were ready for it, but you didn't have it quite planned out. It's making me really uncomfortable. <laughs> I, no, I mean, I was, I'm just eager. I'm just happy. How are you? I'm really happy to be here. I'm doing really well. I, uh, uh, you, you know, I feel like it's always the same, right? I'm, I'm busy with work and, and then, you know, here we are. We're, uh, I, I wrote some stuff this week. I think I have two articles going on the website this week, which Ooh. is odd. One of them's crowdsourced from our, the team, so yeah. I don't think you get full credit for that. <laughs> That's right. But I did have to write like major portions of it. You know, Will just sends me his pics and doesn't write anything, so I have to like in his voice try to. And I just send you bullshit, right? <laughs> and you're like, God, we need to just start this from scratch. <laughs> you send like these really pithy comments, and then like Evan sends, you know, j- like really long. Uh, stuff that I have to sort of like parse down. So uh, it, it's it's an experience. It probably, you know, it's not a long article, but uh, uh, it's our holiday gift guide just for you listening. Um, and it maybe took, I don't know, an hour, all That's, things said and done. Who'd you bill? Right. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm doing well, man. Uh, I'm feeling good. My body feels good. I'm running. I went skateboarding this last weekend with my daughter, uh, and I don't. I didn't die. My knee feels good. Nor did she. She didn't die. That's either. the more important thing, I think. Yeah, no, she's. I I got her all like wrapped up in bubble wrap, basically. So, um, yeah, man, doing great. How are you? Good. Hearing her tell the story of her skateboarding, she she did make it sound like she was hitting vert ramps like hard. It, yeah, <laughs> we like, did. We did go to the skate park, and we did some of the transition stuff. She and yeah. she did pretty well, actually. I, but listening to her tell it, I was like, "Yeah, I'm. I'm not saying you're a liar, but I also don't believe you." <laughs> she did like a mini drop in. Yeah. Uh, well, I believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, you know, I think everything's in your mind. She's a, one a bit of an embellisher. I'll say that for that's her part. But she's also ten she's, and excited. She's ten and excited. Yeah, yes. that's right. And she and and it feel, everything feels really big, right? You, you know, like you look at the skate park and it's like, oh, it's a dinky little. And then you get out there and it's like, oh, I wouldn't get on it. This is not dinky. This is scary as hell. So, um, she did great. I was really impressed by her. That's awesome. Yeah, because I wouldn't get on any of those. <laughs> How are you doing, man? So good. I am feeling good. Uh, some kind of weird virus attacked my family last week. And, and not the coronavirus this time. No, no, no. It was some kind of uh, really short burn, just like GI, for the kids, it was GI and just vomit city for two days. It <laughs> was just awesome. It was so not good. <laughs> uh, but everyone's better now. And so it's, it's nice. I had a long weekend to be sick and also deal with sick kids and now I'm back and I'm on the tail end of the weekend. I got a lot of work done this weekend, which felt really good. So I'm good. I'm just, I'm happy to be here and excited for what's going on. And before we dive into our main topic, I have a thing that I want to share with everyone. Can, can can you do it? I I want to, I want you to share. So I, as a part of the Monta, newsletter that comes out today i got one of the monta newsletters they are doing a home try on program wherein you sign up for their 
newsletter. They have a link in there. You can sign up. It's first come, first serve. I don't know what the population size of their home try-on watches are going to be, but they send you what I'm imagining is a, is a, is a watch with a dummy movement. So basically, we didn't have to start the, the, the podcast is what you're saying. Yeah. They've just beat us. And the sole reason we do this. And they're going to make money. <laughs> so for $300, they're going to send you a non-functioning watch. And you get, I don't know, there's not a... And do you get that time. money back when you... It's a refundable security deposit. Yeah, that's great. I think you may, I don't even know if you pay shipping. So it's like fit yeah. and finish, try it on. Yeah. That's great. For for their watches. So if you've been in the, I don't really know, they're, they're starting this. And I'm excited for this uh, business model because I think a lot of micro brands are really going to benefit from this. Because I think one of the hesitants, the, the, the things that cause people to hesitate from buying these really terrific watches that are out there on the market and go towards more, towards major brands and towards bigger brands and towards things they can actually touch in the metal is that fear of, well, I like the pictures of it and mm-hmm. I know everyone in my sphere likes it, but... Am I going to like it? Especially a brand like Monto, right? Where it, yes. you're paying a little bit more and it's hard to understand why you might want to pay more. Really hard for them to justify the... To the I, well, I don't it's think it's hard, hard for them to justify. I think it's hard for individuals to justify that price. Like, Why is Monta priced at this at yeah. where they are in the segment? Yeah. Well, that's and, cool. And I think it's really cool. And I hope more brands take this on because it's, it's relatively low risk. I mean, you get a $300 security deposit if you don't send it back, then they're going to charge the credit card that they pulled the 300 security <laughs> the deposit off and you have a non-functioning watch. You lose twice <laughs> and they win twice. So I, I'm excited for that. Uh, do check it out because this is an opportunity to try some things in the metal and I'm hoping more people jump onto this. Well, that's super cool. Yeah. Andrew, are you, are, do you think we should introduce our guest? I think we should. So I, I've got, I, did a little bit. Of, I, I prepared a little bit of an intro because this is a big one for us. Here we go. So our our guest tonight is an Oxford University MBA, which I think is a first for us. Yes, uh, he is an award winning vintage watch expert, probably one of the foremost vintage watch experts in the entire world. He's a longtime contributor to Hodinkee Magazine, ruining auctions for all of us normal people with his bring a loop column. He's the former vice president of watches at Christie's. That title's not exactly right, but close enough for us. And the owner and founder of Wind Vintage, Eric Wind. How are you? Great. How are you, gentlemen? So excited to have you. It's awesome, man. I like your podcast a lot. I have not been a longtime listener, but I have started listening to it after it was recommended to me by a client. Uh, recently, and uh, I like your approach, your vibe, and uh, what you discuss. So. You, you know, I think we're a bit like Kalamata olives, a little bit harder to find. Uh, ah, yeah, kind of, kind of funky. But once you sort of try them, then you're like, oh, this is pretty good. This isn't as bad you're, as I thought it would be. Right. You're an acquired taste. <laughs> <laughs> So, Eric, the, uh, our goal tonight, or one goal, we just had one, uh, and, and we may have already gotten, I just wanted to, you've been on lots of podcasts, and I wanted to have done the best ever introduction for you, and I think you're the only one, actually, who could judge that. So, did we do okay? You're tied for the best, if not the best. Yes. Tied. 
Tide. Tide's good enough. <laughs> Tide is good enough. I don't even want to know who the other one is. Because <laughs> it's probably not an acquired taste, I'll tell you that much. We won't give anyone else any free advertising. <laughs> We're focused on the podcast in hand. <laughs> well, well, thanks so much for joining us, man. This is really a pleasure. And this happened really quick. Andrew and I were talking right before you came on the call about... He was like, how did this even happen? And I was like... Shit, man, I don't know. I quoted Carly Rae Jepsen, and here we are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and I wasn't, like, I saw these texts happening because I was I was doing something this morning. So I saw that I was getting texts from a number that I didn't know and Everett. So I just assumed that somebody had agreed to come join us this week. <laughs> and I looked at it later in the day, and I was like, what just happened? <laughs> where, where was I? <laughs> We had planned a totally different episode for for tonight. Our we had an interview lined up this week, and our interview um, just didn't work out. Kind of ghosted us a little bit. Yeah, it's okay. I think he'll be back. But uh, yeah, so we we expected to do something totally different tonight. That's great. Well, it, that's and something good. probably less good is my guess. Certainly. Yeah, that's uh, it's very possible. It's good we're all nimble here. Yeah. <laughs> so that being said, with this terrific introduction that Everett's already provided that is tied for first. <laughs> tied for first. That's what I'm going to put on the website. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want to introduce yourself to people as? For somehow, oh. the, the maybe one person who listens who doesn't know you, maybe my mom, maybe Everett's mom, give us a quick... My mom's a big fan. Okay. Well, then my mom, uh, a quick introduction. Well, there's not a lot to add. I'm from Wisconsin originally. I live in Florida now. I have three kids, seven, three, and six months. A boy uh, is our oldest and two girls. Um, I guess the reason I enjoy your Instagram page and uh, your podcast are I'm actually very passionate about the micro brands as well uh, and have a bunch in my collection it's not like the main thing I talk about publicly. Obviously, my main main job is buying and selling or kind of higher end vintage watches, uh, you know, particularly vintage Rolex, Omega, Patek Philippe, Audemars, Piguet, et cetera. The, mon- so, the money makers. Yeah. Which yeah, is smart. If, yeah. if you're going to be in an industry in this industry, that's probably the right yeah, one. Yeah. You know which tree to shake. I'm not sure buying and selling pre-owned Montas or Okanoskers or things like that is going to pay the bills, but I do love them. And Norcanes and <laughs> yeah, Bearers right. and all of these. So, um, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I find it really interesting. Yet, you know, these young guys that are building brands, you know, uh, Baltic, all the other brands and, uh, and the value propositions they try to offer. And, you know, that whole concept of zero to one, you know, starting with a blank page and then how do you make a watch in the watch brand? What, how do you approach that whole concept if that's your, your passion and dream? So that's, you know, I want to, would love to get your thoughts more on that as well and what you're digging right now in the market personally for each of you. But, um, that's kind of, uh, yeah, my approach, obviously, I study and spend most of my days looking at vintage watches. Um, you know, I do sell some pre-owned modern watches, but it's not really my passion, to be honest. It's a bit more of a commodity. I like something special, unique, a little bit different outside of the mainstream, you know, trading mm-hmm. yeah. 
trading modern Rolex is a bit like trading Bitcoin, you know, it's like they're all the same. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're not really enjoying it. You're not really able to wear it. You're just like putting it. It's like <laughs> just putting it in the box and selling it for whatever the market value is. At that yeah, like, how did it get this expensive? Like what, what changed today? It's like pork bellies yeah. and oranges, right? It's, uh, you know, uh, um, well, well, can can we back up? Can we back up? Uh, maybe uh, I don't know, fifteen twenty years. Uh, I, I know that there was a, a childhood GI Joe watch, which yeah. I, I suspect <laughs> that I maybe had a similar watch. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then later, uh, the 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 ubiquitous grandfather watch that sort of, in in many really tangible ways for you. Um, changed your life so can you give us sort of a your entry into watches how, how you got into this how, how you how the fuck did you get here doing this from kansas city on a tuesday night <laughs> yeah yeah randomly i'm in kansas city right now uh first time in a few years here but um yeah it's uh never anything that I anticipated. I studied politics at Georgetown. I worked in Washington, D.C. for a few years, but before my senior year, I inherited my grandfather's Hamilton uh, watch, which was called the Neil from 1947. It was a gift to him for my grandmother for their wedding. And, um, you know, he wore it his whole life, you know, the small kind of 30, 31 millimeter watch, uh, gold filled with kind of Breguet style numerals. And, uh, you know, my, after he passed, my mom had it serviced and gave it to me. And, uh, you know, it was this, this kind of amazing thing. Cause you could open it pretty easily, like practically with my thumbnail and then look inside at the movement, which was beautiful. And, uh, got interested in vintage watches at that point you know i always had watches you know since since i was young starting with that gi joe uh digital watch but the mechanical aspect is something that you know very different for people i would say of our generation you know we're not dealing with many mechanical things everything we have is obsolescent you know the phones Mm -hmm. we get you know, we'll trade them out in a couple of years, et cetera, laptops, everything, iPods, iPods. So, um, yeah, this idea that something's permanent, the kind of design element, fashion, history, the fact these things have value, you could buy something and sell it maybe for more if you didn't like it or at least get out roughly whole, like it's pretty low risk if you're buying something good and you get to enjoy it, you know, that was all part of it for me and I began uh, just buying some little things here and there. I came across Hodinkee in its first couple months uh, in 2008 and began reading that religiously, then figuring out what I might want to buy. There was a local watch shop in D.C., which I was pestering them all the time looking in there. And, uh, yeah, it was just the start of something more. Then I began emailing ben and bothering him with tips and things that i saw online and he ben said climber hey, ben climber of hodinkee fame obviously yeah ben as, see, ben as we call him too yeah I just yeah yeah and he said why don't you write i'm about to start journalism school at columbia do you want to write about this universal Geneva pole router and tell the story and i said sure why not so i was excited and wrote and 
got positive response and then just kept going with it. You know, those first articles were unpaid, uh, but it was just a passion thing to do in the evenings and on weekends when I wasn't working. So um, the rest was kind of history. The Those articles about vintage watches, obviously Hodinkee kind of pivoted around that time to focusing more on new watches, but still with the vintage element. Yeah. And I, this column that was originally called What's Selling Where then became Bring a Loop kind of grew very popular. We'd do it every Friday. And uh, then I ended up getting recruited. I was working, I went to Oxford after a few years in DC um, and did an MBA. Then I got a job with a biofuel company in Florida and uh, enjoyed that, but could see biofuels did not have a future at that time, you know, seven, eight years ago, seven, really seven years ago because of low oil prices. And I was offered a job at Christie's and uh, decided to make watches my full-time job and haven't looked back. Well, was that a hard decision to make? You know, you're, you're in this industry, which, you know, for better or worse is, is maybe uncertain. Um, but, but certainly the experience you were getting could have been uh, applied in any number of industries that are today booming. Yeah. Um, yep. and I'm sure you saw that writing on the wall. Was that a, was that a tough decision? It was, you know, it was a few things. One, I guess a fear that I wouldn't like watches as much if it was my full-time job, because yeah. like that's your, you know, if that's all you're doing every day, are you really going to be passionate after five or 6 PM about it? You know, I wasn't sure it was kind of naive. The reality is that work never stops. You're constantly working, but I love watches. So it's a Christmas every day if I'm opening a package and looking at the watches inside. Well, and we hope that financially it works out for you too. I mean, yeah, it has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But thankfully it has been. Uh, so yeah, I love it. And uh, I'm very happy I pivoted. You know, I wouldn't look, I don't, I haven't looked back. Were you looking that direction or was it, the, or was this job with Christie's just kind of something that, that approached you or, or kind of just came to be, you weren't out kicking doors down, looking for an opportunity to pivot into watches, right? I wasn't kicking doors down. I ended up having three opportunities to move into watches at that time without really seeking them out. Hodinkee was getting investment, kind of the whole pivot in 2015 with Kevin Rose and a bunch of venture firms investing. Um, Christie's had just undergone gone a big transition because Aurel Box had left the end of 2013. Right. And in 2015, he was, you know, went to Phillips and had started that up. Uh, the, we started the watch department there after being closed for 12 years. Uh, and Christie's needed people. So I had to balance those three opportunities, which was hard. You know, there was a time I was ready to maybe sign with each of them during that process. But ultimately decided on Christie's. I thought one, they kind of let us still be based in Florida versus having to move to New York, mm -hmm. uh, which is obviously great from a cost of living perspective. And this uh, is before the days of zoom, right? I think that yeah, in 2021, yeah. you might say, yeah, they let me be remote and people yeah. are like, yeah, no shit. Yeah, it was. And that was a transition because my boss was John Reardon, who's a real expert in Patek Philippe. Yeah. Um, he came 
like knocking on my door two or three times in 2014 saying, Hey, we'd like to hire you. Uh, and I said, yeah, what, what's that look like? And he said, well, you'd be a consultant. There's no benefits, et cetera. I'm like, I can't do that. And I've got a young, you I know, got a baby. And that, yeah. yeah. It under one year old. And then finally he came back. He said, I think we've got it worked out where you can be a full-time employee, but be based you know, in Florida. And I was the first employee in the 250 year history of Christie's. I think that was a full-time employee technically based out of our apartment, uh, rather than being based in an office. So, uh, so that was good. I mean, it was forward thinking. I was on the road all the time anyway, so it didn't really matter where, where I was based. And that was Presume and everything else I could do remotely, writing descriptions or dealing with correspondence, phone calls, etc. Right. So I spent like one to two weeks per month in New York, you know, just looking at watches and doing meetings and stuff up there. But it worked out, you know, and it proved the whole Zoom concept. You know, I never, uh, I never was a fan. Like in contrast, Hodinkee was like you have to be in the office every every day, like all this sort of stuff, basically during that process. And, um, I was like, I just don't know what the cost of living and all this, like right. I got a family support. They're like, we need you in the office every day. And like, I'm thinking to myself, why, you know, mm-hmm. why every single day? Um, so, uh, yeah, so we, yeah, you know, the whole world's learned this now that, uh, you don't necessarily have to be in the office to be productive. You could be more productive at home. In fact, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I cannot be. I need to be in the office. I know for yeah. my own. I, like, I'm if I'm at home, I'm like watching Netflix and playing, <laughs> yeah. playing with the kids. But this depends on what you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> personality. As long as the kids go to school, I can be really productive at home. Yeah. They are my limiters. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, not for me. Uh, Netflix is the limiter for me. Uh, <laughs> well, so I'd like to talk a little bit about some of your earliest articles, maybe not specifically, but maybe you, you, your interest in the early Hodinkee days. So, so you know, yeah. 2010, 2011, you, you know, some of your your first article, as, as you stated, was uh, about a pol- the pole router, which, you, you know, yeah. I, I assume that in 2010, I think is when that was right around there, that you could get pole routers via eBay or, or, or even probably locally for a couple hundred bucks, right? Yeah. This yeah. super accessible yeah. watch. Um, but, but also you wrote a lot about Hoyer in those early days. You wrote a lot about Vulcane. Um, -hmm. what were your, what were your first loves? You know, these are watches that I think of even today, the pole router is obviously much harder to get, but still, I think of that as kind of an accessible, you know, it's a gentle watch that you can still get today for at or around a thousand to 2000 bucks in great condition. They're moving, yeah. Now it's like three thousand, probably. Well, okay, so they're they're still going up, but yeah, and even more if it's special. So, uh, yeah, I think um, I never, uh, you know, you can't imagine this stuff a decade ago taking off. Like some of the, I've had a couple broad arrow pull routers, mm. uh, and I think those are around eight to ten thousand dollars now. Right, you know, I was buying and. I bought a few for like $500, $400 on eBay, $300 back then. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I was interested, of course, even at that time, you know, Rolexes were expensive. 
So when I was first starting out, you know, I'm just out of college. I'm not like, wasn't buying GMTs and subs. I was buying pull routers and dress Seamasters and Hoyers that weren't that expensive. Like at the time, a sub that was nice, a mat dial Submariner might be like 6,000. And I got a really nice Carrera for 2,000, you know, with a Valjoux 72 when Daytonas were 30 or 40,000. So there, you know, there was a great value proposition uh, there. And, uh, you know, that's some of the stuff. It's a lot rarer than your average Rolex because yeah. Rolex, they were making so many watches even back then. Whereas some of these Hoyers, I feel like, you know, maybe they made a couple hundred of them at most and you don't see very many in the market. You hunt around, you might find five or 10 of some of these odd references that exist uh, to the market. So it's, uh, that's kind of, you know, was my passion. It still is a huge passion of mine. You, you know, uh, obviously now through Wind Vintage, you're selling fantastically expensive pieces, often um, often m- more than, than many of us will make in a year or, or more, perhaps, yeah, yeah. Uh, several years, right? Um, but, but I think you still sort of demonstrate this willingness to engage with the, the less expensive watch. And, and you do that in a couple of ways. I know... Um, you, you know, maybe in a year ago, two years ago, you were really working very closely with Ryan Blazers. Heck, you may still be today, but curating a pretty, a pretty sensible and affordable uh, collection of vintage watches at or around a thousand bucks, sometimes less. Yeah, yeah. Um, Got more kind of set to launch in a few weeks so i'm excited about that but yeah say you know vintage seikos that are like five hundred dollars or eight hundred dollars or different brands too how important is that how important is that space for you personally yeah i mean economically it doesn't make any sense really to be honest but i think it's good for the hobby you know um because the problem i will say and people ask me about this with selling watches in the sort of sub $800 range that are vintage is people still have very high expectations about timekeeping. And for a lot of people buying, say a $500 Seiko, it's going to be their daily watch. Right. So this might be their first mechanical watch and uh, they have very high expectations on, on it running well. And if I might be making a hundred dollars after my costs of putting on a strap and photography and whatever else. And then if it suddenly needs a service, I'm suddenly like in the red on the watch or I take it back. And, you know, it's not, not like it doesn't make a lot of sense economically, but it's, I think it's really good thing. Like it's like the new vintage watches on J crew. I don't know how many are going to sell, but I think it's good because people that are looking at J crew are getting this idea that might be their first exposure ever to vintage watches. Same with the going on rowing blazers for young people. And the whole idea for me is like just cultivating this group of people that'll be future buyers down the road, maybe five to 10 years. They'll they'll be in a different economic situation and want to be buying Speedmasters and subs and GMTs and other, other things, pole routers, Carreras, Octavias. 
So, um, you know, I think um, I've always been uh, very, try to be inclusive and welcoming and as helpful as I can to anyone passionate about vintage watches. Um, and I think part of that is having a place that someone can buy something that's vetted, that's correct, you know, rather than just digging around on eBay. Because you start looking sure. around on at a lot of stuff, like there's so many fakes and obviously a lot of Frankenstein pieces and stuff that's just junk and you have no real way to measure that or know that. Well, well so kind of pivoting on that then, are there, are there watches that you can think of maybe, uh, you, you know, this is a, a particularly contemporaneous question, but are there watches right now that you think present a cool cool i mean i mean that word i guess i was going to change that word but i think that's the right word a cool opportunity for someone who's got you know maybe 800 bucks and wants their first vintage piece are are there any uh like trends you're seeing or things that you think might be a great place to start right now you know 10 years ago pull router was such an obvious Mm -hmm. choice that that doesn't really work today What, what, what are you thinking right now um yeah so i guess if you few things one some of the vintage 34 to 36 millimeter seamasters from omega yeah um or seamaster like watches they're kind of just simple so often automatic like just a great great watch that you know everyone knows omega so you can have a positive reaction to that brand name it's a high quality watch yeah, Constellation is another one that I see often in great. Yeah, Deville is another one that you see a lot of. Are, yeah, Constellations are probably a thousand plus now, but great, incredible watch, you know, chronometer certified watches. Um, you know, that you can get things that are gold plated, which I don't like as much personally. So I'd try to go for the steel. <laughs> uh, so, so, um, you know, yeah, one of steel. our, one of our writers, Evan, um, is, uh, really into to gold watches and, and he wrote an article for the website not too long ago about, it's been like two years. Okay. Well, that's not that long ago, uh, about, you know, what different, what different gold applications are, which I just thought was fantastic. I mean, I, I learned a ton, right. You know, the, the yeah. different types of gold that can be on watches. Yeah. So that, I mean, there's huge values there for some of those, the gold capped and things like that. Um, but the vintage Seikos are probably one of the best value propositions. You just need to make sure you're buying something that's correct because there's a lot of fake dials and fake yeah. parts. Well, um, how how are buyers supposed to be cautious of that? So the, the Omegas make sense to me because the there was a lot of them. But yep. with the Seiko, there were so many of them that they kind of yeah. they went past that like safe amount produced to the oh well these are gonna be Frankenstein because people bought a hundred of them and they're like oh well, I'm gonna change these parts because I like this part on this watch more so what are what are we as consumers looking for in that in that realm of like how do I know it's fake or how do I know it's real or what maybe a better question is what how are people getting the best bang for their buck when looking for vintage watches, especially in that price point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a few retailers, I would say one, you could take a look at the rowing blazers watches, which are Mm -hmm. provided by my friend, Alan Bedwell, who's found well in me, um, for when vintage, there's a few other 
places those watch guys which are two young guys in their 20s i like a lot uh, in the maryland area um then uh if you're interested in seiko hub city vintage where he does yeah, a, drop. a great website yeah he does a drop you know he'll say when it's coming and you gotta be ready to move fast i mean he'll have watches as low as like 350 dollars on there um and then dc vintage watches who's kind of a newer player on the scene for seiko has done a great job um so i think and there's a few others i mean there's a whole ecosystem of seiko sellers um and i think you just have to buy it from someone who's vetted it because if you're just digging around on chrono 24 or ebay it's not going to work out well uh, (laughs) well what do you think of the idea about knowingly buying frankenstein watches this is something Andrew and I have personally talked about a little bit, but I don't think we've ever really talked about it on the show. You, you know, not not in terms yeah. of uh, not in terms of an investment, but just in terms yeah. of a, a joy of of ownership. The problem is if it's a Frankenstein watch. From what I've seen, say you've got like a a Seiko chronograph that maybe someone put a Pogue dial on, but it should have a you know blue dial or whatever, and they're swapping the bezels around. The issue is often for the watch to be in a rough condition to warrant that there's usually other issues like the movements, missing parts, there's severe wear that you can't tell almost like structural damage, if you will, to the pushers, right. et cetera. Well, because he used a chisel and a hammer to open it up. Right. <laughs> yeah. And to warrant messing up the watch, it's probably already got a lot of defects. So, most of the Frankenstein things I see end up being a real disaster and not working well later, even if it, on its face, it looks like it could be an attractive watch. Mm-hmm. So I've got a question for, I've got a question for a friend, uh, not for me, this is for a friend of mine. Uh, but uh, w- what do you think of Mon and Case divers, friend Case divers uh, from, you know, late seventies, early eighties, obviously Hoyer's got the most famous examples and, and, and they're oftentimes more expensive, um, than, than other watches you can find the one, the one that comes to my mind, the Zodiac red dots, which are, I think a watch that people don't really talk about. Sometimes people know about them, but what, what do you think of, of watches like these, you know, sort of special cases, famous cases, um, but that you can still find, um, yeah, what do you think? I mean, I think there's a huge amount of upside. Um, you know, we saw the the Monin from Hoyer get a lot of uh, attention because of the new reissue from Tag Hoyer. Basically, that's somewhat loosely based on that. There's um, a guy on Instagram who kind of specializes in those 70s and 80s Hoyers, um, uh, particularly that 1000 series. And then you've got yeah, a whole tag, bunch tag 1000. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, uh, and there's a ton of other, um, other brands, as you mentioned. So I think, you know, in the whole constellation of vintage watches, dive watches have not kind of risen as much as you would expect relative to chronographs. Um, chronographs have been arguably much hotter the last decade and dive watches have been doing okay, but I think should be more highly valued, whether you're talking about Zodiac Seawolves or all these other kind of lesser names, the super compressor divers, Fortis, all these brands, 
and other compressor watches that you can still find relatively inexpensive, particularly if it's not a famous name. So that's the hot take. If you want vintage, go diver. Yeah, I like that. I mean, it's just one of the value propositions, no question. You know, it's kind of an odd... Sorry, sorry, Andrew, I heard you inhale. inhale. It's kind of an odd thing because for affordable watches, the diver seems to have been the go-to. So it's odd that we're not seeing more uh, vintage dive action, I think. It's true, yeah. The community just... You know, obviously, if it, you've got the followers for the big, the big ones, whether it's the Rolex Mariner or the Omega Seamaster 300s or Blanc Bonds, but you know, so many of the other ones are so niche, but they have such cool designs on the back. I was just looking at at a couple super super compressors yesterday, and I was like, man, these are so cool. The, the designs on the case back and the cases and just the value. I mean, 42 millimeter watches that are still like two or $3,000, you know, max. Um, and you, I'll probably buy it for under a thousand dollars. I mean, it's crazy. So we've talked a lot about vintage watches and vintage luxury watches, yeah. which makes sense, right? I mean, that <laughs> makes, makes sense, sense given our guest. What doesn't make sense. And what I'm really curious about it, it makes sense, but it also, it doesn't quite connect. And I think that makes you really unique, especially in the role that you're in, is your interest and love for micro-brand watches. For the, yeah. the very real, not air quotes, the true affordables category of watches. And I, and I say that makes you unique because most folks who are who live and work in the luxury segment especially the vintage luxury segment just don't don't care for it it's just not it's a whole different world that just doesn't interest them and your interest for it is fascinating to me but we i also want to take some time to talk about that and the world as it is in the micro world with you one of the great minds of the watch world right now thank you yeah i think um I love the micro brands. I think my interest really started getting to know these people that were building building these brands, whether it's Chase Fancher of Okanoskar or um, my friend Jonathan who started Brew Watch Company. You like yeah. that guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every, everyone, these, yeah, it's the running joke is that he's like the nicest guy. So everyone... He's got to have dead bodies or something in, in the yeah, basement yeah. of the apartment because he's entirely too nice. <laughs> yeah. I remember when he basically was like, I'm starting this watch brand. He was at Red Bar meetings in New York. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's inspired by coffee machines. And I'm like kind of scratching my head. Like it's called Brew you know, it's kind of bringing coffee culture and watch culture together. And I'm thinking, how is this going to work? Uh, but, you know, I think it's a super cool product. And, he, and here we are six years later, and it's still today one of the hottest. He, he makes a new watch and it sells out in minutes. When, when you got a good yeah. vision. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was <laughs> just at the time very, like, skeptical. I was like, coffee and watches, it just seems... <laughs> Sure, we're all into coffee, but how do you meld these worlds? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, 
but just such a nice guy. My friend Fred Savage is super into those watches and loves them and is always promoting him too. Just meeting him, I think, at a wind-up fair uh, is where they first met and he bought one and now he tells everyone to buy those watches. Um, so, uh, yeah, so... Um, is it okay if uh, I mention that you just casually threw in that you're friends with Fred Savage? It's because <laughs> yeah, sure. sure. We, we, yeah, that look that we shared was: Do we mention this or <laughs> my friend Fred? Uh, it sounds so pretentious. No, but he no, is actually a good friend. Uh, well, and he's very because... famously into watches, right? Uh, Fred Savage is one yeah. of those guys who's famously sort of into, and not only into watches, but into sort of cool watches, right? He's not wearing. Uh, you know, Daytona's and uh, Cosmograph Daytona's or, or you know, well, maybe he is. I don't know. He's wearing a brew. He certainly could. But yeah, he's wearing a <laughs> yeah. brew, which is just, I think, the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, he loves it. And uh, he's got a, such a cool taste for design. I mean, he's got a Hoyer Monaco that <sighs> helped him get. But then he's got the brew that he loves right alongside. And he's got a Hellbros alarm watch, which, you know, probably worth like eight hundred dollars or something that he absolutely loves and you create the value yeah yeah that's that's sort of our that's sort of our big thing is that no matter what the watch is you know i'm wearing my my only vintage watch a watch that you have two vintage watches okay well this is one of my the one that works (laughs) yeah this is the vintage watch i have that works uh it's a it's a 1996 titanium jdm casio right like it's such a weird watch. It's ugly. No one likes it, but it's just the most special thing. So yeah, right. It, it doesn't matter what you're getting as long as you are really in love with the thing you're wearing. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's cool. You wear, you wear it well, you know, just cause you love it and like, it's clear that you love it. So, so what, yeah, you know, I think one of the things we run into a lot talking to people about micro brands, because we're obviously huge proponents of micro brands. Um, you, you know, there's a bit of a incestuous sort of watch blogger slash microbrand relationship that I think is fairly criticized sometimes. But um, w- what do you what do you take on long term value of things like a microbrand? There's often sort of this um, maybe implicit, but but this idea that a, a microbrand probably has a bit of a um short-lived value and so for for new collectors coming in i think there's often a choice maybe it's not a choice but there's often sort of decisions being made do i go with seiko boliva hamilton or do i go with notice brew and monta right given the choices where where do i want to put my dollars long term do you think that there's value in these brands that may be around for five years, may, maybe more, maybe 20 or 50 years. We never know, but yep. is there value in buying a brand say that may only live for five years? I think so because, you know, first off it's whether this thing can be serviced in the future, you know, and I think, um, you know, most of these watches have pretty straightforward off the shelf movements. NH 35 or 9015s or yeah. So it's, it's, that's the first test. If it's something that's so proprietary that it can't be serviced, which is honestly the case with many of the modern independent Swiss watch brands that are doing, you know, crazy 
crazy materials for their hairsprings and these other things that you'll never really be able to fix if the company goes out of business. Um, you'd almost need to downgrade the movement to like traditional materials because yeah. you're not going to be able to get these crazy things. Um, or it'd that, be prohibitively expensive. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a exactly. full of the full cost of the watch to replace yes. the movement. Yeah, that's always you know the fear so um that's a kind of a first thing uh second is um i do think most of these brands will be around for quite a while i as long as they're not like what i would call the kickstarter brands i mean these brands that like do a kickstarter they don't really have any lasting power i've seen so many come and go off with like one or two watches and then they can't make it make it go they start so, um, they start with no money their margins are too low so they don't make any money and there's yeah, just never any there. sort of financial backbone exactly whereas like you know i think uh brew will be around hopefully for a long time and and others like it just because their model was not based on like a kickstarter approach so mm -hmm. um yeah so uh that's you know i think you're part of a different culture or group of owners. If you have something like one of those or a Manta or even a sin or some things like that versus like, of course you can get a Hamilton field watch and be very happy with it, but that's a little more mainstream. So it's really depends on what appeals to you personally. You know, the 60s and 70s, I think, weren't exactly like what we're experiencing now because, because the frankly, the tools were not yet anachronistic in the way they are now. Um, but we there were things like microbrands, right? The, the last time watches had something like microbrands was in the 60s and 70s. Um, yeah. and, and and those brands were just like we see today. You know, some of them were, were very short-lived. Some of them were, you know, 10 or 15-year brands. What do you, as a, as a quote-unquote vintage watch expert, uh, and, and I don't say quotes to be uh, air derogatory, <laughs> but, um, you, you know, what do you as a, as a watch expert see when you see these brands, right? Because I'm sure they come across your threshold from time to time what is there value that remains in these brands and and what does that look like for you are you excited about that are you are you cautious what do you think um yeah i mean i think first you have to look at the quality of the watch so um you know i don't know if you've talked about haven watch company before well, i don't um, think we ever have we've we've been in contact yeah. with those guys but never talked yeah. to them yeah it's a cool guy a friend of mine but if you hold that watch in your hand, it's such a nice case. And the quality of the dial is so nice and unique. And it's, uh, you know, it's clear that it's a quality watch, I would say, in your hand. Um, and, you know, I feel the same about Oak and Oscar. I really like the Olmstead uh, model, just a classic field watch with a nice bracelet. Yeah, Will, Will our editor, is a huge fan. He owns an Olmstead. Yeah, which dial does he have? I think it's the brown dial. I think it's a great dial. <laughs> Maybe taupe. That's a great, like a taupe, yeah. yeah. Um, then um, it's just a, you know, it's a, you can tell it's like a really nice watch. Um, I don't know. I've held others that are kind of cheap feeling and you can just wind it and kind of feel it's not that great. Um, 
you know, so I think, um, I think that, you know, you can have watches that aren't the real deal in terms of the mechanics, because it's just, you know, to be honest, like the, uh, the Baltic watches, the first series of pieces were kind of poor quality. The chronos, they're like, they had the seagull movements and everyone had issues with them. Like, you, you know, uh, we got to admit we're big fans of the ST1901 movement uh, for any number of reasons. Yeah. In, in fact, just yeah, recently yeah. we've sort of sung its praises. But yeah, there's problems That's with right. that mm-hmm. movement. I mean, that, yeah, it might have, he just might have had a bad batch or whatever. But, you know, I think people were paying $1,500 or whatever it was. It was a very attractive watch, but like then it wasn't working well. So, yeah, that's kind of tough. But, his, you know, more recent series of watches, all, all of them are higher quality and, and people love them. And I have one and it's a great watch. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think whatever he might have just gone for a poor, poorly finished or, or whatever movement that had a bad batch, like manufacturing of the watch wasn't great. But, um, well, we've, we've read some, or at least I've read some about how Siegel makes movements and the, the manufacturing process is really horizontal, uh, compared to what we, what we know sort of in the quote unquote Western world. Um, sometimes you, you know, you'll have two watch, two movements in the same batch that were made in completely different places with different standards mm-hmm. and humans and machines and everything. So just bad factory production. It, you know. it, it's a little bit different system. So, um, I'd like to ask you about something you said earlier. You said something earlier, which I, it seems so obvious to me as soon as you said it, but um, I don't think I've ever heard anyone uh, phrase it in quite this way. Um, the thing that attracted to you, attracted you to watches, was at least in parts the permanence of of what a watch is uh, in light of obsolescence. You know, in our everyday, in our day to day lives, phones and watches and everything we use is, you know, got this three year, three year life lifespan. Everything, our 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 entire community engagement device is three years and done. Do Self destruct mode. Done. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you think this idea of permanence in this obsolete world is what's driving the current interest in watches, particularly vintage watches? I think it's a part of it for sure. I mean, you buy something nice and you decide to keep it. I don't know if you guys think about it, but like if I'm taking a watch sort of out of inventory to keep, I'm thinking about, you know, I wonder which one of the kids will get this and, you know, kind of thinking about it in those terms that I don't expect to sell it because I love it so much. Obviously I could, if I need to, or, you know, decide I get something better or whatever, but, you know, there's not any, many other things in our life where we're thinking about the, you know, which one of our kids will take it or, you know, maybe it'll pass down to our grandkids or great grandkids one day, certainly not cars or, probably not houses we buy or all these <laughs> sorts of things, you know, and, and definitely not iPads and MacBooks and, uh, this is great. Granddaddy's computer. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Although hopefully if it was an Apple one, which is like a $300,000 thing now, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but yeah, but like, you yeah, know, it's, it's crazy. Nobody speculates on, on computers, right? 
Yeah, unless it's an Apple one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And we make fun of people who buy cell phones that are like diamond encrusted and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the Virtus yeah. back yeah. in the day. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, well, you, you know, you you said something uh, again, and I'm I'm going to ask you about it. But you said, you know, there's not many things uh, that we think about in those terms. You know, which of the kids is going to take this? I, I think, on, on the contrary, I, I'll speak for Andrew. I know we both do that. In in, in oh, yeah, I don't really in really awful and bizarre ways. You know, like things yeah. we'll spend time thinking about items that almost certainly our kids are going to have no interest in but in those con and, and i think that that is true of maybe many of the people who listen to the show and who you know who we engage with on a regular basis is that something unique to this collector's mindset do you think yeah i think um it's something that appeals to most people I deal with, particularly with vintage watches, you know, and for someone who's say buying a Submariner at retail, like maybe they plan to keep it forever and pass it on. But so much of the modern luxury game is a lot of obviously resale and I can buy it for this and sell it for two mm -hmm. grand more and all this stuff. So that's very different from the traditional I'm buying it and I'm keeping it forever. <clears throat> or I'm buying I'm it. buying my watch. I'm buying today. I'm buying the watch that I'm going to own. Yeah, for a long time. And, uh, you know, so I think um, that's definitely a part of watches more than basically anything else. Just for, for a quick, I mean, a little bit of an aside, I'm wondering your take on how much of the inflation of watches right now is a function of it being a commodity, like commodity trading? Or do you think that was a byproduct of pretty steep inflation already occurring? Um, I'm just curious, like for me. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I get asked this, like, why is there this huge mania with watches? I mean, I think we first saw you know, I remember pre 2018, you could walk into any Rolex store and pretty much get a Submariner. You couldn't get a Daytona because that was the hot watch, but mm -hmm. you could get a Submariner. You could maybe, after a few weeks, get a GMT. Like, you know, it wasn't the same thing prior to 2018. 2018, we began to see the platforms develop for the resale of watches. And just to be like clear, that. that's when you went to Christie's, right? 2015 was oh, when okay. I went. To I was but, trying to make a joke about you were causing yeah, it. Yeah, maybe. yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, no, though he planted the seeds uh, in 15. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It was planting the seeds. But the I was offered a Nautilus at retail 5711 in 2016, you know, and I passed, uh, unfortunately. Oops. Because <laughs> I didn't love it. Yeah. But it was, you know, $26,000. And, uh, now it's and like now they're selling four hundred, three hundred thousand dollars mm -hmm. for yeah. for just basic like bitch. Dial, it's like a hundred ten, but but the green dial is yeah four hundred plus. It's insane retail thirty four, but um, I think there is so much. There's a lot more liquidity with buying and reselling yeah. watches. Um, you've got all these new platforms, which you know was like StockX, but you've got all these resellers you've got 
uh, Chrono 24. You've got a lot of eBay. You've got a lot of ways you can sell a watch much easier, Instagram, um, than in the past. So that removes the friction from the market. And, you know, it just keeps going and going. So, so we uh, created the issue. Like, our, it's our fault us as a watch people whole it's definitely not our fault created not, the yeah. issue like the reason <laughs> yeah. i can't buy an explorer today for and in like less than a limb yeah. is <laughs> is because of people like me who were like oh i could buy that and i could sell it for more money yeah okay and yeah, uh, yes. and it drives the, <laughs> drives the company's nuts and um the big question is you know, how is this is it going to continue because sneaker you know think <laughs> about the sneaker hobby like a decade ago people would just buy the sneakers and keep them but this whole ecosystem yeah. right? you could like go to you could like go to finish line and buy a pair of jordan fours any day of the week stuff. yeah i remember those days like there weren't lines yeah. but you know nine ninety eight percent of people in line for the shoes are just buying them to resell them to make a hundred bucks or whatever and uh and they end up two seconds later on StockX, and yeah, StockX does 150 billion or something crazy per yeah, year, some, something That's, like that. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's a hundred, it's several hundred billion in shoes, and their valuation is huge, several billion, but it's like a hundred, two hundred billion a year in shoes or something. So, um, so it's not scarcity; yeah. it's it's per, it's consumer greed. Yeah, it's just changing. And and so if you, this is an interesting thing that I was reading recently. McKinsey did a study that predicted by 2025, there'll be a $32 billion a year watch resale market. And as of right now, it's about 8 billion. If you go back a few years, I think it's like 2 billion mm-hmm. or 3 billion. There is, it's exponential the growth with these new changes in habits of buying and reselling and flipping. It's just a commodity now. Um, Whereas in the past, when you bought a watch, you bought it to keep, there wasn't like a premium on the secondary market. In fact, you'd lose money if you decided you wanted to sell it for most of these. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's very different. Well, we blame you for all of it. So what you're saying is buy micros (laughs) because those still bottom out the day you get them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so, so one more important watch question, and this is actually, this is a really important question. Uh, and I think that the amount of people who care about your answer is tremendous. And actually it's maybe just me, but, uh, it's still important. 7750 or 5100. I guess 5,100. Oh, oh, interesting. Oh, man. I think you're the first 5,100 vote. You are. <laughs> yeah. It makes me question a lot of things. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> now I've got to go back and review my answers. <laughs> I mean, I like it because uh, just such a bulletproof movement, I guess, partial to Chuck Maddox and the Holy Grail Speedmaster. I like the format of the watch and the yeah, just look and feel of it it's and, a great great dial format yeah you, you're yeah, right that's that's what it kind of comes down to for me and a lot of a little less ubiquitous and somehow i feel like it's it's just more appealing to me i don't know on the technical specs if it's thinner uh or not as well but it somehow feels that way so. yeah i think it's actually i think it's actually like 0.1 millimeters thicker depending on the <laughs> okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah but it's cool 
I do think it gets implemented in thinner watches, though. Interesting enough. Yeah. yeah, exactly. On the wrist. I don't know why. But uh, but yeah, I love, I mean, they're both great. But, it's that wrist yeah. to crystal height. That's proprietary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, that is important. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I guess we should. I guess we should probably wrap for watches, at least for just a moment. Okay. Yep. Because there's some important stuff we've got to talk about. Yeah. So, Andrew... For the 159th, 160th time? It's got to be. Other things, what do you got? So I'm late to the game on a television on series. On so many things. On a lot of, most That's things, so to be honest. <laughs> I'm, I, my wife jokes about me being a grumpy old man all the time. and <laughs> It's so true. I'm only, I'm only recently aware of eBay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, That's good. So I started watching a TV show called Yellowstone. And Will described it as Sopranos with Cowboys. I don't think he's exactly wrong. I think, I think that's a fair enough uh, synopsis of it. It sounds amazing. It's, I, I mean. it's a, so the whole premise of the show is Kevin Costner as this huge, enormous cattle ranch patriarch. It, is the ranch is huge or Kevin Costner is huge? Cause he's all, not all the above. Okay. So it's enormous <laughs> ranch in Montana and it's set in the modern era. Okay. And it's a cattle ranch. Kevin Costner is the patriarch of this family. Is it and a cattle ranch? It's a, it's a Campbell ranch <laughs> in Montana. Carry on. Carry on. And it's got the very righteous gemstones feel where you've got this dad who's got his shit together and is kind of losing it because his family just can't get it. They grew up these spoiled rich kids who just can't get their shit together so he can retire. And so, then, so like succession a little bit. Too. Yes, it's very succession. It's, it's, it's the anti-hero thing, right? But the way they develop and grow these characters is really well paced. They introduce things at times just right when you need it. You are never really wondering, but you're always kind of curious. You're like, why is this guy like this? But And then you find out, like, right when you need to find out. The, it, the story is really well written. It's obviously drama for the sake of drama because it's a drama television series. All the drama is very realistically set. It's the problems that you would expect a person in this position to face but bigger than you'd expect because this is the real world and not television land you know there aren't but <clears throat> without any spoilers it is i'm i'm just into season three season four just dropped it's airing on the paramount channel i think and on their streaming service i don't have that so i'm gonna have to wait until it comes to peacock <laughs> just, it's a tough life we have it, you know these problems i just <laughs> uh, i don't know how i'm gonna make it it's Maybe a fan. Share his login code with you. Yeah, I, yeah. Have, I have his garage code. I'm just going to go watch it. On a, <laughs> we, we have offset weekends, so I'm just going to go when everyone's at work and watch TV on his couch. Kim won't mind. She's working at home anyway. It should be fine. Uh, it's a top five TV show for me. Kevin Costner is the best American cowboy in screen history. He's better than John Wayne for me. Wow, he's and and maybe it's era based, right? Yeah. Kevin Costner yeah, yeah. It's, is it's a more, to be, us. but he's a more believable cowboy than John Wayne for me. Yeah, well, John, John Wayne was, such was a, a bit, you know, it was guy. a campy time. That was yeah, like, yeah. But he's the spaghetti western, right? Yeah, he he's my my favorite 
favorite cowboy. It's got all these actors that you know and recognize, but they they get into these characters that are so well developed that you forget that you know them from Fifty Shades of Grey or, you know, take your pick of other things. You're like, oh, I know this person, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, It's terrific. It's a really great show and I'd highly recommend it. Also, for those of you who have Xfinity packages, you get Peacock for free. Whether or not you know that, you get Peacock for free. I just, wanted, I, I just want to. I just want to put in a recently quick, found that out. I just want to put in a quick plug for who I think is the greatest Hollywood cowboy. Vigo Mortensen. It, it's not Vigo, but I do really like Vigo. Vigo was a good cowboy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, Sam, Sam Elliott. I think well, is the Sam really. Elliott, it's not. He, oh, he yeah. is a cowboy though. That's the thing. <laughs> He's just a hippie cowboy. You know, I, he was. I like ran into him at Cabela's one day. I believe it. Yeah. yeah. I was just at Cabela's getting ammunition and there was Sam Elliott. Also getting ammunition. Also getting ammunition. Yeah. 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 In Oregon. In, in Eugene. Yeah. He, he lives here. That they, yeah. I, they split time. I forget where in California, but they split time in like the LA area yeah. and this little tiny, really cute town north of Eugene yeah. where we're at called Brownsville. Yeah. Um, it's famous for what's the bridge? Uh, Stand by me. Yeah, yes. They have a yes. Sta- the bridge that the Stand By Me bridge scene was filmed on is in Brownsville. They have a Stand By Me festival, but he's got this really beautiful estate uh, that's visible from the road. Yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous uh, place. Yeah, in the Willamette Valley. Well, so I've got another thing. Do me. It's not a TV show. Weird. It's not. I know, right? That is weird. Uh, because I am a certified Netflix addict. Uh, no, mine is a dish, mm-hmm. and it's not like it's not like a plate, but. It, you put it on a plate. So this is a dish that I've uh, had a, a, a relatively long love affair with. So much so that I asked you, Andrew, have I ever talked about this on the show? And you're like, I don't think so. So if I have, I apologize. But it, it's been long enough that neither one of us could remember. Um, spaghetti a la Putinesca. How long have you been off keto? Uh, two weeks. Okay. So, yeah. okay. Yeah. So, so this is... Uh, so so first, spaghetti alla putinesca. Alla putinesca is literally translated to in the style of prostitutes, I believe. Uh, <laughs> so and, you know, it's dirty. <laughs> and the legend, the myth, the the uh, almost certainly not true etymology uh, there is that when sailors would come into port in the south of Italy. Uh, the prostitutes would lure them in with the sense of this pasta. Almost certainly not true. Or or, or at least, you know, n- not based in any sort of real sense cultural of the phenomena. Sea. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but it is a pantry pasta, which, you know, for me collectively means, you know, you can make this from things that you probably have in your pantry. Um, should. I think it's a better word. It, you, you know, we're going to link to... Uh, a recipe for this dish in the show notes, and you should check that out. Uh, it, it's a recipe by Kenji Alt Lopez or Kenji Kenji Lopez Alt, excuse me, who I think is like the greatest internet chef there is, at least since Emma Christensen left the kitchen. Um, but it is super simple to make. You can make the sauce with with tomatoes, canned tomatoes, in the amount of time it takes your water to boil. Um, you use, you know, canned San Marzano tomatoes. You crush them with your hand. Very simple. You use fresh garlic. You use olives. You use anchovies packed in oil is fine because you really kind of want them to dissolve in the oil. I um, used anchovy paste. 
You can use anchovy paste. I, I, I think probably a filet is just fine. It's better, but I've used anchovy paste in a pinch. Um, what did I say? So garlic, olives, tomatoes, tomatoes, anchovies, and capers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be a little bit of a pain in the ass to chop capers if you've never tried it, but you'll, you'll get the feel for it. And, and in fact, I've used whole capers in this dish and it's been just fine. Um, but it is just this really olives rich. I said olives, damn it. Include that again. (laughs) It's just this really easy to make. You use, don't use, don't go to the, don't go to the Whole Foods and buy, you know, fresh pasta. Use just box pasta or bag pasta, you know, the dried stuff. It it is, and and don't use a lot of water. A couple tips. So one, don't use as much water as you think when you boil the pasta. Use just the bare minimum amount because then you get this water that's really rich in starch and a silkier uh, noodle. A second tip is, so, so you're going to pull the pasta before it's ready, right before it's al dente. Strain it, and then you're going to cook the pasta in the sauce. So pasta will boil much faster in water than it will cook in the sauce. So it gives you some time to really get it right. And don't dump all that water. The pasta boiling water, don't dump it. Save it. Save about a cup, maybe a half a cup of it, and use that in your sauce. Two, those are the two the two really, really important things to this dish. Use less water in your pasta than you think, and save some of the water to add to the pasta when you're cooking it in the sauce. It will change your life. Those are two all pasta styles tips that you should be doing i think that's right but i think that there are things that people don't know i think that there are things that people don't know and i think it's really important and i was emphasizing that you should just do that in all pasta dishes absolutely absolutely so uh spaghetti alla puttanesca that's my other thing for the week i want you to try it and i want you to message me your experience because i think it is maybe one of the best dishes i've ever had super easy to make cheap Fantastic. Kenji says, truth be told, Putinesca tastes best when your senses have been slightly impaired and the whole thing is sloppy. Yes, <laughs> that is right. That's exactly right. My man. <laughs> My man. So that's it. And we've got one more. Eric. Eric, other things. What do you got, man? Okay. I'll, I have two, but I won't dwell on one. One, I love uh, I love Yellowstone. I know excited for the new season. I haven't started it yet, but uh, also loving Succession uh, right now. Yeah, um, really fun show. Um, the thing I wanted to mention is just uh, we got some speakers recently that we have in kind of my living room office area um, from a company called Fleetwood which is part of Oswald Mills Audio. They're made in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, we all kind of appreciate, obviously, in the watch world, the finer things. It's kind of like, as people say, like the watch lifestyle, you might have a nice camera, like uh, whatever. You might have like whiskeys and bourbons and things like that. We fancy. But having high quality audio is kind of a, game-changing thing and like you hear music in a new way when you're in front of it and and really great speakers so these speakers we got a i got a tube amp from from uh, audio note but a cobra and i just play off my phone through like cobas and this this blue os system via bluetooth and 
you know, it's just really fun to hear songs in a new way that are so much richer than what you hear through, you know, your laptop or normal speakers or, you know, AirPods or anything else. It's just the quality is so much richer. Uh, and it's like hearing these songs for the first time. So that's, uh, that would be my other thing I would say. Eric, we've talked a lot about headphones on this, on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked, I think neither Andrew or I, or at least, uh, at least for sure me, and I'm not an audiophile or what I would call an audiophile, but I do really like yeah. when I, when you hear nice audio, I really like it. We yeah. upgraded probably about a year ago, our headphones and, um, you know, even just in recording the podcast, it really changed, uh, the experience, um, never talked about speakers. I don't think on the show, I think this is a first, I think so, which is surprising because you're, you're right. It really fits, right? It's like watches, knives, cameras, cars, yeah, and audio booze. and bo- booze and audio. That's right. And, yeah. and so I'm surprised that we've never it's gone like there. A- it's a pillar of the whole experience that is sort of missing. Like you don't know it's missing until you experience it. And then it's totally different experience. So you're both uh, welcome to come uh, and listen to music in Palm Beach whenever you like. I, I, I'm really going to do this. You know, when we make it to Palm Beach, you're going to be really, really disappointed that you extended the invitation. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we'll be sitting there uh, listening to some cool stuff, hopefully. You, you know, uh, just just briefly, Eric, you and I met, I think Mike Razak, one of our writers, also writes for the Time Bomb and, <clears throat> and many other publications. Mike's just a great dude, one of my good friends in life, but um, just someone who gets me. He just, you know, he's that guy who knows me uh, or one of those guys. And yeah. he sent me a picture of you standing in your office. Uh, and I don't know what the context of the picture, um, or you can tell if it's, if, if, if it's important. But I think I just sort of randomly posted it on our Instagram post because he was right. I was like, yeah, this is, this is just a great office. Uh, so if we do come to Florida, you'll have to give me the office tour because I think Got it's it. a pretty fantastic office. Hey. Yeah, that photo was for Rob Report. It was they had profiled five dealers around the world, which was very nice. And what we thought was kind of coming next and what was interesting to us in the watch world. So, uh, yeah, it was a pretty cool photo when I saw it come out. I was like, whoa, that looks sick. (laughs) It's pretty sick. This is my office. Yeah. I was like, whoa, this looks nice. (laughs) Rob report who, who, uh, I'll, I'll plug you a little bit who named you, the foremost expert in vintage watches in the country or in the world, perhaps. Yeah, we've kind of vintage watch expert of the year last year, which was very nice. Pretty fantastic. Yeah, so it was, it was great. Your it, humility it, is... Even though you like the 5100 better than the 7750, which is... That's the weirdest part of the whole thing to me. I, I know that I is I think it's weird. what makes the most sense. <laughs> He's smarter than we are. We're missing it. He gets it. <laughs> <laughs> all of my life choices uh now are in question i wasn't expecting that question so it was definitely a surprise it's like <laughs> he just knew i i, I gotta say I, I started the comment but i want to finish it your humility is is some next level shit there's if i were named anything of the year like if i were named asshole of the year <laughs> i get a shirt you'd get a t-shirt a hat, yeah. i get my car vinyl wrapped in it and you are just not that way, and that that's awesome. We that 
I think that's that's part of the thing that you have is that you are so incredibly approachable. You're just a dude who happens to be way smarter than the rest of us. You know it, yeah. but you don't you don't need us to know it because you in probably inside just know that we know uh, it anyway. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's very kind. So Eric Wind, you can check him out at windvintage.com where if you have a spare half a million laying around you can buy a fantastic watch you can yeah. check him out on instagram very nice instagram page by the way eric at Thank you. eric m wind eric what do you want to add before we go for the day nothing except i look forward to listening to music in florida with you one day <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us eric and thank you for joining us for this episode of 40 and 20 the watch clicker podcast you can check us out at watchclicker.com that's where we post a every single episode of this podcast as well as weekly watch reviews articles all sorts of good shit you can check us out on instagram at 40 and 20 at watch clicker if you want to support watch clicker you can do so at patreon dot com slash 40 and 20 look that's how we get the money to pay folks like eric Wynn to come on the show <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget to tune back in next thursday for another hour of watches food drinks life and other things we like bye-bye <laughs>